You are now listening to The Secret Life of a Grad Student. I'm Megan. I'm Laura. And we are two grad students who want to share the untold stories of graduate students past and present. Welcome to the show. This week, we continue talking about imposter syndrome with Professor Timothy Possa, an advocate for students dealing with imposter syndrome. Here is the interview. My name is uh, Timothy Poiseau. I'm uh, currently a uh, faculty in the Department of Biological Sciences at University of Montreal in, uh, in Canada. I went to grad school in, uh, in Montpellier in the south of France. My, my PhD was in parasitology and microbiology. And then I moved on to become a sort of uh, ecologist over the years. Timothy, can you tell me how you became interested in science? It's, it's a very good question. I'm not quite sure. I remember. I am more or less for like a... I've been in science for most of my life at this point. When I was a kid, my, uh, my, my father worked during the summer as a, a scuba diving instructor. And I got, I got very into uh, marine biology, like any kids are into mm-hmm. biology, most of them anyway. Uh, and that got me interested into, into biodiversity, mostly, and, and my, my early interest in biology from uh, being exposed to fish, I guess. That was a huge uh, motivation, getting to understand why uh, why there are so many of them, why do they leave? You were interested in marine biology. Was there anyone who kind of brought that into your life? But I've never really had any interaction with other scientists as a, as a kid up until early during grad school. No one in my close circle of acquaintances or, or friends was really into, um, into science. You said that you were... Um... The first-generation scientist? What exactly does that mean? Uh, I know I was, uh, I was curious about a lot of things. My original plan was not to be a scientist. I wanted to be a musician. I started playing the violin when I was three, and I still play to this day. And science was just this thing that, that happened on the way. My father went to art school for, for a couple of years. He's still, uh, still drawing, still painting. But then when I, when I was born, he started working and then he, he developed this very successful career in, in something that was not, he, he was not a professional artist. And my, yeah, my, my mother started medical school and then, and then stopped and, and did something else. Yeah, I was the first, uh, I was the, the, the eldest child and I, I was the first to go through the university. So this very approximate knowledge of what was uh, what was waiting for me. And so I had no idea of the type of person that would fit or not fit because it was just a place you went and you take classes. And then I was also reading books. It was, it was before the internet was a thing as well. So access to information was not exactly the same sort of thing that was, that was available as uh, it is today. What was the first puzzle-like thing you ever solved? Do mean not outside of science? Uh, outside of science, yeah. Like something, something that made you realize that you really liked solving puzzles. I was playing chess a lot as a kid. I was playing kind of word games, number games, this sort of thing. Any any situation where there is a there is a clue hidden somewhere and you have to figure out the solution for yourself. I was I was all in that. It was sort of a constant. And that's still something I like to do. I find it very find it relaxing. Like solving problems is a form of relaxation. Did you know that you were going to be doing science when you were in college? My my undergrads was in life sciences. 
but what we call life sciences in uh, at least in my university was very broad coverage of all natural sciences so it was a lot of mathematics a lot of chemistry a lot of physics and a little bit of biology for the first two years and then it was progressively more and more biology i wanted to study sciences that was that was clear and i didn't really have the grades for programs in mathematics and, and biology at least in france is what you do when you want to do sciences but you're not really good at school it's sort of like the, the softest of all sciences is biology and so i went into a biology major mm-hmm. which turned out to involve a large amount of, of non-biology for the first couple of years but that was yeah my, my pass through uh, through university did you know immediately that you were on the track to go to become a doctor, to become a PhD, to do graduate school? Well, the first year, it was, it was quite uncertain. And I, I initially wanted to do human genomics. That was sort of my, my interest uh, in my early year of university. And the reason was part of the, the faculty in our undergrad were working on the human genome project at the point of the uh, Arabidopsis saliana genome. So it was this huge sequencing center when it was new and it was intriguing and so I was very into uh, human genomics and then I made an internship in a pharmaceutical company trying to develop drugs for for various diseases based on on the the genome of people and I had a bunch of meetings with my then advisor who told me it's really clear what is uh, driving us is is money. We're in the business of making money and as an undergrad that was not really the sort of value I recognized myself in and so I said maybe maybe research has less money and more discovery and that mm-hmm. is sort of one thing that I have to explore. So during the, the last year of my undergrad I started thinking about grad school and at least getting a master's. So what was it about what you pursued in grad school that made you interested in pursuing that subject? In the first years of my of my masters, uh, I was into a program in immunology, and one day I was getting a book at the university library, and there was this, this green book uh, on the return counter that no one claimed. It was sort of lost, and I picked it up, and it was about pulse and parasites. It was this huge, like the quality of parasitism textbook that's very well known in France. I, I'd never heard of parasites before, and I started reading the first couple of pages, and it was about ecology and evolution of long-term interactions and the, the balances of conflict and benefits of the different organisms. And I, I, I was instantly fascinated by that because that sounds like a, a very cool puzzle to solve. So very, we, we know a lot, we've done a lot of natural history and then we still have no idea what are the organizing principles. And, and that was something that, that involves some, you know, some, some physiology, some immunology, some biology, but also a broader environmental context. And, and that got me to think about what is the interface between my, my interest as a, as a biologist at the time and then ecology at large. And that's when I, I started to focus a little bit more on parasitism. I changed the classes I was signed up for mm-hmm. just to learn a lot more about, about that. I have a very short attention span. And so I found this new book and I'm like, I want to do that. I started talking to a few of the, uh, the faculty, got an internship doing Austin Parasite Research. And then I, uh, I, I decided to become someone who worked on uh, ecological interactions. What type of people did you imagine do the work that you wanted to do? Obviously, at that point, you were switching fields. Did you think that you were going to fit in? Well, I had no idea. That was uh, that was one of the things that I, I had no idea what I was getting into. And I, at this point, I only met two people working as parasitologists. One of them only uh, on the phone, and this seemed like mm-hmm. cool to talk to. I had a sample size of two. Uh, like, okay, this field sounds welcoming enough. Uh, and I. I 
didn't really question the, the fact that I, I would fit in or not because I had very little pre-existing knowledge of what a university was or what academia would be. I, I've done my undergrad in a very small institution and part of my master's in a very small institution and I was not one of the prestigious universities. It was not, it was not a big deal. So it was a lot of first-generation kids and we didn't really have the idea of, of the fact that we were not fitting because no one here was arriving with outstanding credential or, or prestigious high school. It was a very different atmosphere than uh, the more prestigious places. Mm-hmm. So that not getting the sense that everyone was fitting. Did you ever think about outside of your, your university? So one of the things that, that, that changed quite radically is I, I moved to the uh, University of Montpellier during my uh, halfway through my, my master's. And I, I was here for my PhD, and then suddenly I was I was around people that came from more prestigious institution before, and there the were a very small number of places from where the grad students would come from, and and. 90% of them would come from these two places, and I would not. And for the 10% of us that, that would not, it was the first indication that maybe there's not that many pathways to grad school, uh, or there's like clear majority pathway, and then some, some people that are, are sort of slip through the cracks. And the, the, the end of my master's and the beginning of my PhD were periods where I started questioning the, like the extent to which I was fitting into academia. Um, and I, yeah, for, the, for a couple of years, I managed to solve that by being surrounded with other people that were not coming from, from these places and other people that were mostly first-generation academics as well. So it was, it was just a change of environment that made me realize that I had been in, in places that were not quite, there were different degrees of like different parallel academic universes, uh, which was uh, mm-hmm. I just, I'd switch very suddenly. Wow, that sounds um, that sounds very difficult. I guess kind of following up on that, especially starting at the point where you know you go from your master's to your PhD, and you're surrounded by more people that are not necessarily first generation scientists and people that are coming from prestigious institutions. And I don't want to lead you here because maybe the answer to this has nothing to do with that. Um, But is there any specific time in your PhD, this is post-master's, where you felt like an imposter? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I interviewed for the PhD position that I I got, it was the worst interview I've I've ever done in my entire life. It was mostly my my advisor asking me, well, do you know... are you good at microbiology? Not, not, not really. Uh, so are you good at programming? Like, not, not really. I'm really terrible at that. You say, well, what about mathematics? I said, no, I just, no, I'm awful at that. It was a series of like five or six questions about trying to understand what are the things that I could actually do. I said, do you? I, I like solving puzzles. And he said, well, okay, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll call you back. And he went on for 10 minutes. And I said, well, okay, that was, that was very nice. But it's clear it's not going to go anywhere. I took the train back to my class. And three hours later, he sent me an email saying, I'd like to offer you the position. And I was like, he made a mistake. He's, he's really desperate. So there's a red flag somewhere in here. But... Uh, I don't know. It, and it was, it was, I said yes, obviously, but with the clear knowledge that I was going to have to do a lot of things that I had, I had no idea what to do. So I was, I was feeling out of my depths, but I, I knew that. I knew it was going to be. Did the interview um, weigh on you throughout your PhD? 
Oh, not not really. Uh, I, I would say I would say went well because uh, that's one thing mm -hmm. I. I I had a discussion with my with my, my grad students at some point when we reflect on their interview and all of them told me, you know, like the first interview <laughs> I felt entirely out of place and I just I shared the story with them. So you know, it's that whenever you interview someone and it goes a certain way and either you see something something in them or, or you don't, and it's mm -hmm. not always quite clear to everyone what, what the thing is, but what determines the interview went well is the, the outcome. The things we discussed during the interview helped me realize that there was a lot of a lot of catching up to do. I mean, that's amazing that that he accepted you. And I I don't know, I guess I know. I'm willing I, to I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm willing to imagine that uh, you're underselling your skills. Um, but I guess that's imposter syndrome. No, I was, I was absolutely not. Even the, the French coding system is known to be fairly, fairly harsh, right? Mm -hmm. But I've never managed to get anything better than maybe 4 out of 20 in mathematics, which even for France is really, really bad. I failed all of my programming classes. I was not gearing up to be a strong quantitative student at all. Can I ask you a follow-up question to that? Yeah, so if you had um, poor grades, what drove you to continue doing science? Well, I'd say about half is uh, I had no idea what else I would do. But I already had a master's in parasitology. That's not very remarkable skill. And, and the other thing is that I, I had bad grades because I'm bad at learning. I refuse to learn anything as a rule, but I'm good at solving things and figuring things out. And I try to solve that as, well, give me, give me something to, give me a puzzle to solve and I'll see what I can do, which is, which is something I, I have come to value a lot in grad students, obviously. And interacting with a lot of people over the years, I realized that grades are not necessarily an indication of, they're not what will make a scientist. So you can, can be an amazing scientist with very good grades, you can be an amazing scientist with very bad grades, because that's essentially two dimensions of knowing things that are independent and, and qualities like creativities and, and perseverance are much more important than, than grades. I think that that will be really important for some of our listeners to hear and understand, because I think grades can be can be a real deterrent for people, you know, who are puzzle solvers, yeah. like you said, who would do great in science, but they just aren't great learners. So thank you for sharing that. When your imposter syndrome sets in, do you know what exactly goes through your mind? Like, can you just describe what goes through your mind as imposter syndrome sets in for you? Yeah, uh, it's very dependent on the, the context. And sometimes I'm you know, working on, on something in my office and I stop and I feel, oh, I should really not be doing that. Someone else, another, and a qualified adult would be doing that and that person is not, uh, is not me, which I think is sort of a defense mechanism. It's, it's healthy. It's really not healthy, but it's useful in a sense if it leads you to double check your work and make sure that everything is discovered and there are a lot of small instances like that one thing that sends my uh, imposter syndrome flying like in full gear is interacting with grad students there is nothing that is more difficult for me to hear than when someone say oh I, i've read your paper and i like it a lot it's coming from a grad student coming from a colleague i'm like yeah obviously it's a good paper coming from a grad student i'm like no find find a better scientist to read and i i don't know it's it's very difficult to process for me 
because I don't want to be responsible for someone else's ID. I don't want people to take my half-baked IDs and, and think, wow, that's actually pretty deep. It's probably not. Is, um, I half wonder about that. So when you were a grad student and walked up to a professor and said, I, like, I liked your paper, what was going through your mind then to the point that like now you put pressure on yourself when a grad student comes up to you? Yeah, it's, that's just what it is. Uh, I, I was very, I was impressed. Just, you know, the, the audacity of working to a faculty and, and speaking to them about their own research. As a grad student, that was very uh, difficult for me to grasp at, at some points. And, and most of these people seem to be able to have this very off-the-cuff conversation about their own research. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've never been able to. It's still not normal to me that other people would want to read the sort of thing that I write, especially grad students, and I don't know why. And there's a part of me that is, is pleased, but there's also a part of me that is that is terrified at the poor decision-making skills of these people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. While you were experiencing any form of imposter syndrome when you were a graduate student. Did you ever open up to anyone about it? Um, did you ever open up to your advisor about it? Did you ever feel comfortable enough to do that? And if so, how did that person respond? I don't think I've ever uh, discussed that with my, my PhD advisor in any, in any way, but I, I, was, I was lucky as a PhD student to be in a group where some of the faculty were really open about their own struggle with imposter syndrome, highly accomplished people having open, you know, a coffee break discussion about about the way they felt, about their own skills and their own place in science, but also, yeah, taking the time to, to talk with the group about what, one example that came to mind when I was thinking about this interview uh, was one of the faculty that ever accepted in nature, and we, we all know he struggled with imposter syndrome quite a bit, and so we asked, you know, is it going to make it better? And he said, no, it's, it's going to be making it worse. Because people will start paying attention to, to what I do. It's more, it's more eyes on my work, and one of them will realize that it's, it's all a problem. And it, it was not. It was, it was impressive work of the, of the highest quality. But yeah, there was this sort of, of sense of dread of what if I've missed something? And what if everything I've built is not as good as people think it is? And what, what that, that did for me as a grad student is, and I, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but it normalized in a way the fact that imposter syndrome is a, is a part of academia. And pretty much everyone suffers from it at some point. No, whether or not the, the fact that it, it was normalized is a good or a bad thing, I, I don't know, but it helped. You know, it helped remember that other people are going through the same thing. And it's not, yeah, it's not something that is specific to any sort of individual. It's just, it's, it's part of the game. And it's one of the worst part of the game, but it's something that we'll need through. Oh, man. <laughs> so before I go on to the next questions, other than what I've asked you, do you have anything specific that you want to share with regard to the topic or, you know, with regard to your own experience doing science? I think one of the roots of imposter syndrome is that the whole point of what we're doing is, is dealing with things that we don't know. It's dealing with the unknown, it's dealing with uncertainty, but also dealing with, with concepts and tools that are at, at the cutting edge of what we're doing. And so we there's a lot of things that can go wrong and, and we have to navigate that. And imposter syndrome is what if 
you know, what if, what if it's wrong? What if there's a, a mistake I didn't catch? What if other people would realize this thing that I've done wrong? Or what if other people would do that much better than myself? But it's, it's useful to look back in the end, uh, where it's a sort of, it's a sort of probability, right? If you, if you really not where you should be and, and you've been in science for a couple of years, then the sort of the probability that you're really not in your bed should decrease. You know, so yeah, the longer you stay in science, the more likely it is that you are actually in your class. It's not meaning that imposter syndrome gets gets easier. Like it didn't for me, it didn't for many of my senior colleagues. I think it's sort of remains constant, mm-hmm. but it helps to to try and look at this uh, and say I've I've made some made some progress. I've I've had some growth as a scientist. And you know, even if for whatever reason I was not quite where I should be at the beginning, then probably I uh, I'm here now. And by the time you, you you're done with your PhD, there is no question that you are uh, where you should be in academia. In your current career stage, do you still have moments of imposter syndrome? And what are they like? Uh, oh man, yeah. Uh, the last time I had like a small flare up of imposter syndrome was was six hours ago. I would say. <laughs> Yeah, no, we're discussing writing a writing a proposal for a grant that is uh, something I've, I've always wanted to explore and I have never explored before. And and in the preparation for this, I, I've been interacting with a ton of a ton of colleagues who know these things inside out, and I have a very superficial knowledge of that. And most of them are also junior scientists fresh fresh out of the PhD in the early years of the postdocs. And I, I was in this I was in this call and I realized, well, I probably the least qualified person here. But then you know I realized, yeah, I, I'm the least qualified person on this topic. And and for whatever topic you can think of, there's only always going to be a person who is more qualified than you. And so what helped me go through this small spike in imposter syndrome was there are things I know to do really well and then I can use this knowledge to help this specific group. So yeah, the idea that the imposter syndrome does not go away, but I try to reframe that in terms of I'm, I'm feeling this way because this is a situation that I'm, I'm in at the moment. Uh, what can I do to act on this, on this situation? And it doesn't necessarily always disappear, but it, it lets me function through the rest of my day, I think, until it starts again in the morning uh, of the next one. Thanks so much for listening to Secret Life of a Graduate Student. Next week, we invite all of our series interviewees back for a panel discussion on imposter syndrome. If you liked this episode or our other series, please hit the like and subscribe buttons and share with your friends. Bye.